All right, we're going to get started. Um, one thing, as you came in tonight, and we'll go over this in just a minute, as you came in tonight out there on the tables, and you don't have to, if you don't have it now, we can pass a few back, but it's just an Old Testament chronology, okay? Now, one of the things that uh, I'll tell you is these are not necessarily exact dates. Some of them are exact, some of them are not. But when I say 1,000 B.C., that's the time around David. That doesn't necessarily mean he was born then or he was 18 then or anything. That's time around. And you have to understand there's approximate dates. One of the things that um, we have talked about is that the, the Old Testament writers weren't really interested in giving us exact dates. They were interested in giving us theology. And so, for instance, you'll see the Exodus 1450 or 1250 B.C. Those dates come from two different things. One is uh, 1 Kings 6.1 where it talks about 480 years before Solomon. There's some discussion if it's for what the 480 comes from. But then in 1250, there's some archaeology that supports that. Exodus 111 that supports that. And when we, we uh, get to 1 Kings, we'll look at that a little bit about um, what's happening there. But it doesn't... Dating it 1450 or 1250 really doesn't make a huge difference. Um, the uh, it's just it's one of those things scholars like to talk about and figure out. But right in that time frame, I mean, it may have been 1400 or you know, I mean, it's in that time frame is when it happened. And then you'll see. Now, the reason I'm giving it to you this now, and I don't expect necessarily you you, I would love for you to keep up with it for you know, time in memoriam, and you know, you'd like to. Hanging on your wall, some of your lives may be changed by this, I don't know. But uh, as we go through, uh, especially when we get to Samuel and David and Solomon and First and Second Chronicles, and, um, and we get into some of the prophets being able to slot them where, this, where it goes, okay? So the truth is we'll probably give this out, and sometime in another two or three months we'll give it out again. But uh, you can keep up with it and kind of look through it and know uh, what's going around. Okay. Yes. Yeah, this is dating them according to our calendar, not according to the Jewish calendar. So when, uh, and that, that's why it's difficult and sometimes to figure out what what their years correspond to. But yeah, there. This is based on our calendar, the um, yeah Gregorian calendar. So that's why BC is there, and you can see that. All right. Anything else before we jump into Joshua? All right, let's go to the book of Joshua. We'll take questions and concerns and all of that. Tell me, maybe you don't have preconception. What did you know about or think about Joshua before you read anything in Joshua? You can say blank slate if you want to. That's okay. What, what, do you, what did you know about Joshua or think about Joshua before you read? Joshua led him to the, the promised land, the, the walls of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Right? Any different opinion of Joshua or anything you noticed that you hadn't seen before or questions you have in these first few chapters? What's that? He's a good military leader. He is. a good strategist with the Lord's help, but uh, Joshua was a, a good strategist. The, particularly the, uh, the battle of Ai that we saw where they're successful and they draw them out and then surround them as good military strategy. What else about Joshua? Or the or the stories in here? It is. 
it is it is his name. That is Jesus' name. Jesus is the Greek Jesus is the English translation of the Greek translation of Joshua. That is a very good question that nobody knows how to answer, really. There there's some there are most people that think that Jericho was rebuilt, but not necessarily in the same site or the same place, but that Jericho was rebuilt. Prominently in Luke 19, which we haven't got to yet, when there uh, it says Jesus was traveling to Jericho. Yeah, uh, there has been a lot of discussion about where this Jericho is that is in Joshua. Um, archaeologists have tried to find it. Um, and there are some, some sites. Most people think that there was an ancient Jericho and then a biblical New Testament Jericho. Yes, Wayne. Yes. No. Yeah, no, there's not been that speculation. I, it just um, most, most people, when you read, they, they think that what happened there, and Wayne's asking about Moses just dying and then not being found. They don't know where his grave is kind of thing. Um, there are a couple of speculations on that. One is that the Israelites purposely didn't want him to be found because there was a real concern, I think, on the part of the Israelites that people would begin to worship Moses uh, instead of God. You get some of the sense that the transfer of power to Joshua was intentional in that way. Um, and for them, they, they didn't have that curiosity necessarily to find it like we might. And so... It's kind of the thing, well, we, we know he's there, and we went to the promised land and kind of didn't look back, and we don't know where it is. But I, I've never seen speculation that he it did like Enoch or... Uh, right. And you know that what you have to understand, too, is most, most people attribute the first five books of the Bible to who? Who wrote it? Moses, right? Well, he obviously didn't write that part. Right? I mean, you know, so sometimes it's funny. In, in, sem- in seminary, I had a guy that was really fighting for... Moses wrote all of the first five books of the Bible. And, you know, was trying to show his expertise to the professor. And the professor said, who wrote about his death? And the, well, I don't know. But, um, so obviously there had to be some knowledge of what happened there. It wasn't that just that, well, this is probably what happened. There had to be some knowledge there. But um, I've never heard speculation in that way. Yeah, that was the, Yeah. 120, had good eyesight, still had his strength. Yes. Other things, questions, observations about Joshua, because they were having such a good day. Miss Teresa asked, why did he ask the Lord to make the sun stand still? And I just think their victory was going better than they thought, and we've all had those moments, maybe not like Joshua did at this moment. We may not have been overlooking the slaughter of thousands, but we've had those days. Well, you just wish this day would never end. And so we just said, Lord, could you give us a little time to finish off what you called us to do? So, yes. <laughs> Ms. Jones said, it's been a while since I had one of those. <laughs> um, but And he had to finish the day off right. He had to impale some people's heads on a stick. It's Joshua. You know, that's the thing that I think that most people find most surprising, and that's part of the reason I asked that beginning question, because you do you get this sense, and I don't know why, but Joshua is a a children's story that that you hear told. Joshua and the the uh, battle at Jericho, and you hear the story of 
uh, at the end of the book we'll get to where he says, for as for me and my house, we choose this day we're going to serve the Lord. You have the, you know, the, the stepping into the Jordan River and the Jordan River parting. And you have all those stories, but when you read Joshua, he was a brutal military leader. Now, he was a brutal military leader because God had called him to be a brutal military leader. And you're right, if this happened today, we would call it, we would call it genocide. Yeah. But we also have to remember that it was a different era of, of humanity. Uh, that's how you you killed the kings to to weaken whatever remnant there might be, and you showed the people. I mean, you know, we'll get to David, and when David kills Goliath, he cuts his head off and shows it to him. Says, "Look what I got." So, I mean, that's the Old Testament is not as we've talked about a G-rated movie. Um, and part of that was because God knew he had picked a people for himself and he was going to develop them and bless the peoples of the earth. But if his people got corrupted, then that blessing possibility was gone. We'll talk about Achan a little bit more in just a minute. Okay, I'm going to save Achan for a second. And we'll, I'm going to give you a little Achan spill here in a minute because one of my major research projects in seminary was on Achan's sin. I was assigned it. And so I'll talk a little bit about that. Any other observations, questions, concerns? No, that was that was after that with the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites dress themselves up. They bring the moldy bread. They act well. And you would think they would have learned their lesson. But by now we've learned they don't. Joshua doesn't consult. Um, and the Gibeonites trick them. And they make a treaty, and there's nothing they can do about it. Now, what's interesting is the other kings hear that the Gibeonites have joined forces, and now they're double scared because the Gibeonites were good warriors, right? That was an interesting little side note. Chapter 8, verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and the children and the aliens who lived among them. Yeah, well, you had the stones that God had provided. Um, and we haven't found a written record of, like, the book of Deuteronomy, but there was some kind of form they had it in. Yeah, there's another... There's another uh, one of the things that you read in here is... Um, it's when the day stands still, isn't it? That they uh, they talk about a different book. Um, and so you realize that these are not the only accounts of what happened that are that were around. These are the only ones that have survived. Um, there, there may the difference between what they had and what we would have as far as a written record. If they had written record, it would have been one carefully protected, not them all getting together talking about what they read over the weekend. Uh, it would have been one. But there was obviously some writing down. Chapter 14, 13, is that what you said? No, that's April 14th. They didn't follow the, the laws. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> yeah, I'm, the... Uh, you, you get the sense that in some ways, what you get the sense of is that from the moment the covenant was established, it was never completely followed. Now, what happens is, as God punishes them for different things, they begin to follow it more closely. 
Um, now, you, you think Moses would have been a little more um, imperative about that, giving his previous experience with Zipporah, right? And what we read several months ago now, it seems. But um, I, I, we don't have an explanation for why. They just didn't. Um, but it was obvious they had to before they entered the promised land because they took several days to perform and heal. Yeah. They were starting to write down stuff. And like I said, what the difference would have been, they would have had most of this legacy would have been passed on through word of mouth just because that's um, that's the way you passed it on for the community. But they would have also had a written record of a lot of it ready to go. Oh, yeah, with the circumcision, Miss Jones? Yeah. Miss Jones said, can you imagine being Joshua standing up and go, oh, by the way, there's one more thing before we go in the promised land. We're going to have to circumcise you all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jack, go ahead and follow that, Jack. <laughs> yes, good. Appreciate that, Jack. Yeah. And... and what you have is that, there, you know, we we could spend time, and for me, it's it's not worth all the effort to spend time about who wrote it and how it got written, and the, the purpose of it is to understand that it, God intended for us to read it, and so it was protected and written down and delivered to us. Um, now we can we can get into that sometime, not probably not in this setting. We've got too much else to go, but it, yeah, it, it is interesting that God chose a man who was Moses, who would have been educated in some of the best schools in the world at that time uh, in order that he would be educated enough to do this, to write some of this down. 14. Just, just Shah, yeah. That's just a, another book. And you'll see in a couple other places it'll talk about, uh, in the Old Testament, it'll talk about other books that are referenced. You know, Miss Rachel, one of the things is when that that is is evident in Scripture that God God doesn't uh, um, endorse ignorance in any way. That uh, I I read a quote yesterday, and I put this up on my Facebook status was that that continuing to gather knowledge is an issue of stewardship. That God has equipped us with minds, and we are to continually equip ourselves and to fill ourselves with information. The flip side of that is, the more you know, the more you're accountable for knowing. And I don't want you to stop reading right now, but the truth is, the more you know, the more you're accountable. But at the same time, we can't live like we're called to live if we don't know. And so it's it's a balance. But my one of my one of the things that I love about that walking through the Jordan River, and there is that accountability. We know both stories. They would have heard of both stories. They would not have witnessed it. One of the things that I think is so cool about that is what God was basically saying to them is, I am with you just as I was with your parents. Just in the exact same way I was with that group of people that came out of Egypt, I am now with you. And this is your opportunity to do what they did not do. Now, there's a little bit of difference in some of what they do. In that Jordan River crossing, what does God ask to happen before the water splits. They get the ark, and the priests get in, right? It says as soon as they begin to step in, the waters begin to recede. 
you talked about Joshua. You, you think about the commands he's had to give people. Okay, priest, grab that ark, get the poles up, walk out in the middle of the water. Let's go. Get your feet wet. And once you do that, God's going to split the sea. I know you haven't seen it. I've, I've seen it. Joshua had seen it. I've seen it happen, so I know it's going to happen. But just do what we're supposed to do. And then there's an interesting thing because you have a moment of what I believe is public and then private remembrance and devotion. Because you have the public remembrance of each tribe, go get a stone, let's set up a monument so that we remember. And when children in years to come say, why is this monument here? You'll know. But then I think there's a moment when Joshua just wants to set a little memorial. And so he takes the stones, gets them out into the middle of the Jordan. And he sets them up. Now, we're not told, but the assumption is that when the Jordan started flowing again, that it covered that up. But it was a memorial for him just to show that I remember this. I preached a sermon on this one time called Remembering to Move Forward. And the idea is that sometimes we set up memorials and then we live in the time of the memorial. We, we remember what it was like then and we wish it was like then and we loved it when it was then and well, that was a great moment then and wow, can't you remember then? But what Joshua does is he says, set up the memorial and then let's move forward. Let's don't dwell. Let's get going. And the purpose of setting up altars or spiritual markers or spiritual moments with the Lord is not to revel in them or stay in them or rejoice in them. It's to be able to move further along in your relationship with Him from that. Does that make sense? That's not just set up a memorial just so we can remember it. Let's set up a memorial to move forward. Let's talk about Achan's sin for just a minute. Anybody else feel it was... Um, unfair for Achan's entire family to suffer for Achan's sin? Anybody else? Now, why again was it a sin what Achan did? Yeah. It's mine. Right? And it was not an indirect command. It was a direct command. And he was dishonest about breaking God's law. What I think is interesting is if you look at, um, and this is hard for us to understand, but if you look at Joshua chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 1, does it say there, Achan acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things? Is that what it says? What does it say? Israel, here's something that we do not get. In God's economy... We are you. And you are us. My sin affects us. We live in the most individualistic society that has ever existed. And we just do. Never has there been a society when you could live individualistically. Because you always needed deep relationships with other people to help you along. Now, you say we don't completely depend on ourselves. That's true. But I could now get my food, put my gas in my car, and get all of my daily needs met without interacting with a single person. 
I can go to Publix or to Kroger. I can walk down the aisle, pick out whatever food we need, stick it in my basket, go through the self-checkout line, and unless something's wrong with my order and i got to get an attendant, which makes me mad if I'm checking out by myself, right? Then I go home. Now, I'm not talking about my family. I mean, obviously, I'm going to interact with my family. But we don't have need for community like there has been need. Now, on a spiritual and emotional level, we do. But on a physical level, we don't. And so what they understood in God's economy much better than we do is that we need each other and that what we do affects each other. One of the things that you see in in literature now about sin is this idea that you have to combat that what I do in the privacy of my own home or my own office or my own car or my own workspace doesn't affect anybody else. But it does. It's a simple understanding that we as a congregation as the body of Christ here at First Baptist Billetsville, are interconnected and affect one another. And when it says that Israel sinned, it wasn't just a misprint. It's because when Achan sinned, Israel sinned. Now, it does point him out, right? They acted in regard to the voted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger, but who's the anger burn against? Israel. Now, part of the reason Achan's sin was so egregious as well is because he didn't own up to it till he had to. Right? They pull out the whole of Israel and they play, let's find Waldo, right? Where is he? Where's the one? And so you narrow it down and then you narrow it down and then you narrow it down and you narrow it down and finally um, we come down to the Achan, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, and... Joshua said to Achan, uh, so they've identified it as Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. Tell him what you have done. Do not hide. And Achan says, I, it's true, I've done it. Well, they knew that already. Now, why the family? Well, there is this idea of purging the sin from Israel and complete purge. There's also the idea that the human part of the family would have had to have known that he took some stuff. Because he buried it in their tent. And we're not talking about luxurious four-bedroom tents. They're living together. To bury it in your tent, Daddy, where'd you get that gold bar? I just found it on the side of the road. There had to be some knowledge that it was there. And so they had to have, there, there are many people that think there had to be, and it's a little bit of speculation, active participation in the cover-up of what had happened. And so we need to understand the seriousness of violating the Lord's commands. Here's another thing that's interesting to me. In this passage, they send the men up to Ai, which I believe part of the reason that the defeat came was definitely 80-90% of it was because Achan sinned. But there's also this idea that Joshua, it never tells us that he consulted the Lord, Charles. It never says he sought the Lord. He just said, oh, that's not a big place. Let's go take it right? That's not a big deal. Just go up there and take it. And they get up there, and it doesn't seem like many of them are killed, but you have to remember their thought. God has given us the land. Everyone's cowering before us. They've just seen Jericho fall. And so when any resistance comes, they're like, whoa, whoa, guys, what's happening here, guys? And so they run back. Here's what's interesting to me. Joshua falls on his face and says, Lord, why did you bring us here? You should have left us over there. 
Like it's God's fault, right? And I wrote in my Bible, let me see if I can find, I won't look at it because I remember what I wrote. I wrote in the notes of my one-year Bible, how many times do we blame God for our stupid mistakes? I mean, the reason God was punishing them was because of something ridiculous. And Joshua, oh, Lord, what? And, and God says to him, get up off the ground. Right? Joshua, get up. There's sin in the camp. Something's wrong. It's not, I haven't abandoned you. You go figure out the sin, and then everything will be okay again. But I just thought, how many times, God, what, you know, if we're honest, I've got myself in this mess. Why did you let me do that? And we start blaming him for things that we've gotten ourselves into. All right, anything else on Joshua before we move on? Yes, Bill. Yeah. There, there's still consequences even when forgiveness comes. Another theme that I told you on the very beginning that you're seeing is God is fiercely protective of his people. Now, what we're discovering is. That fierceness reveals itself against his enemies and against his own people when they step outside of his commands. Right? He doesn't want just any God people. He wants his people. And when they choose not to do his things in his way, he's fiercely protective of his name. All right, let's go to Luke. Luke is one of my favorite books in Scripture. And there are some great stories that we have encountered in the last week or so. Any questions about Luke? We started in Luke 12 and went all the way up to Luke 17:10. Right, say that again, Gary. Luke 17. He's just been talking about faith. He's been talking about not causing people to stumble, and he says, I'll just read it here. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. You have this idea that... Uh, the Pharisees kind of propagated some that they should be commended for their faith, for their actions. And Jesus was saying to them, you're just doing what you're supposed to do. You're servants of the king. You're servants of God. Do you praise servants for doing what they're supposed to do? And so what he's the, the implication there, and these... And, well, we did encounter some of the toughest teachings of Jesus in these, these passages. But what he's basically saying is don't look for glory and fame and honor for doing what you're supposed to do. Does that help at all, Gary, or just confirm? Or And you have to remember, a lot of this is talking to the Pharisees who were trying to say, look who we are, we're, and Jesus is continually to kind of knock them down in their understanding. Um, it's kind of like with our children when, when, you know, Eli cleans his room and then he wants, can I get a treat for cleaning my room? Well, you're supposed to clean your room, you know. I mean, that's not something you should get necessarily rewarded for. I'm not, does that make sense? I mean, we're not going to throw a party for you. 
other questions or things happening in Luke that you noticed or touched you or concerned you? I've always said that's one of those sayings you don't see on Christmas cards. Right? I didn't come to bring peace. I brought, came to bring division. He's basically saying that, and this is in a section where he's talking about interpreting the times, what it's like to be a disciple, being prepared for the coming kingdom, and, and those kind of things. What he's saying is, I've come to make a very clear distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of here and now. I've come to make it clear that you're either following me or you're not. If you're not for me, you're against me. And he said, I came to make that very clear declaration. And the result of that is, I am going to bring division because people are going to have to choose. Now, in short-term prophecy, he was fulfilled in his death his crucifixion in Jerusalem turning on him and people still supporting him. But it's been, you know, the thing is, since this moment in Scripture, he has been dividing families for centuries. Now, he's united a whole lot of families, too. That's not, but the point is that it's making a decision whether you're going to follow me or not. And when that decision is made, sometimes you have to make that in spite of what your family may think, in spite of what your friends may think that it is a decision to follow me regardless of the consequences. Does that help? Sort of? Yeah. I, I mentioned uh, Sunday night in our discussion, our beginning discussion of Mormonism. And that may take 48 weeks, right? For those of you that were there. Our beginning discussion of Mormonism, we're going to do that over two or three more weeks. Um, I had a friend in uh, seminary, in college in seminary, uh, one of my closest friends, who grew up Mormon. And when he was a early teenager, he converted to Christianity. And when he converted to Christianity, the Mormon community shunned his entire family. And when they shunned his entire family, he became the scapegoat for it as a 14-year-old boy. And he and his dad had a terrible relationship because of that for a while. Now, the good part of the end of that story is that his entire family has come to know the Lord since then. But what you saw was a very a division. I mean, in college, we had discussions about his dad. In seminary, we had discussions about his dad and not believing and, and the division that is there. And so he's saying that that's going to happen. I mean, you, you see it both ways. You see, Cliff, like you said, you see a, a son that's saved and a dad that's not and the problem there. But you also see, and uh, some of you may have seen, even in families, extended families or personal families, where... You have a personal belief and faith in Jesus Christ, and your children have not yet done that. And it can cause some issues, some difficulties. Um, and so he's not saying I'm bringing division for division's sake, but he's saying a natural outflow of what I'm doing will bring division. Right. And he has that poignant little moment where... Um, he looks at Jerusalem, and that, that you almost hear his heart. How many times I've tried to, to gather you in, and you've refused, but now that you've refused, it's not going to be pretty. Other things in Luke. <laughs> Here's the thing. On, yeah, on April 13th, right. You're thinking about being out of school. I know you're ready to get out of school. I know you are. On April 13th. Here's the thing. 
If you're reading through the Gospels, you can preach on money anytime you want to, and in the next seven days you're going to read about it. Because Jesus talked about stuff more than anything else. If he were alive today, people would say, would he quit talking about money? And the truth is, back then they thought, well, he just quit talking about it. But I didn't plan it that way. That would be God's planning. So, Chapter uh, 15 is a little bit of a breath of fresh air, isn't it? The lost coin, the lost sheep, and the prodigal son. Every time you read the prodigal son story, it just it just touches me. You know, I mean, just read it. And then in the last few years, I was one of those guys that until two or three years ago, I never really looked at the prodigal son and thought about the older brother a whole lot. I just thought he was the bad guy in the story, and so I'm going to focus on the love. And now every time I read it, I think about myself and whether I'm displaying the traits of the older brother. Um and my rights and privileges. And, I mean, doesn't he seem just like a, uh, for lack of a better word, a party pooper? Right? <laughs> he did get a fire. <laughs> you know. But, and the point of that is, he wanted to have a little party with the friends. Bring them over. What? I want to watch the game, Dad. Why can't we do that? But the point of that is, I do think we need to understand, and what we need to realize is, sometimes the good kid misses the relationship with the dad. Um. And the point the dad makes is you always had access to this. All you do is ask. But we've, we, we've gathered somebody in, and now you're mad about it? I think it's just older brothers. I was a younger brother, so I was always the good one and loving. But are you an oldest child? Okay. But, you know, you know I think oldest just they, they think they deserve more than, than others. I'm sorry for all you oldest in the room, but that's just how it is. <laughs> right? <laughs> Always, yeah. <laughs> then the younger ones will have the hardest because you're not watching over them as much. <laughs> our oldest has more trouble sharing than our youngest, than our younger, our middle one now, not our youngest now. Rick, do you have a question over there? Yeah. You know, growing up, you, you have those moments when you get separated from your parents, and, and I remember those moments. Um, I remember a couple of times I had to go to the front at, at uh, Big K. We didn't have Kmart or Walmart. We had Big K at Dyersburg, and they had to announce over the loudspeaker, you know, Patricia Larson, you have a, Patricia Larson, you have a child at the desk. They don't do that anymore, I guess, but back then, you know, you did that. And you remember the terrified feeling that was there when you were a child separated from your parents. The only thing that's worse than that is when you're a parent who gets separated from your child. Um, and so you feel for this dad who, you do get a picture of God in this way. He knows the son's going to make major mistakes. I mean, he knows it. He knows he's not ready to handle the money, but yet he knows that if he doesn't give him this opportunity, he's not going to learn. And one of the things that I've prayed is that I'll be a dad who's okay with letting my sons and my daughter live and learn. Now, that doesn't mean I don't protect, I don't guard, and I don't make wise decisions, but I don't want to be so protective that I don't let anything happen to them. Uh, there's a 
great line, theological line, in that movie that was released a few years ago called Finding Nemo. I know y'all look to that for theological guidance. But there's a moment in the whale when they're talking about Nemo, and they're talking, and it's Dory, the bluefin, uh, and Nemo. If you haven't seen the movie, you just act like you have. All right, go rent it. It's a really good movie. So you, you get these two, and they're talking. And he, he says, I've got to get to him. I've got to get to him. I can't let anything happen to him. And this Dory, who's not the smartest fish, just says, well, that don't make any sense. If you don't let anything happen to him, nothing ever happens to him. And then this idea that if you don't allow things, then not. So you have this picture of a dad doing that. And it, it's a picture of God with us. He knows we're going to make just boneheaded decisions. He knows it. And yet he allows us to go, but at the same time his heart's always breaking and looking forward to that moment we return. I love the idea. And when we did this sermon, I guess it's been a year over a year ago now, I did a sermon series on the parables uh, in January of, of 09. The idea of calling it the prodigal dad. Because prodigal doesn't mean bad. It just means excessive. It just means over in abundance. And what you have is a dad who is excessive in his watching and his waiting and his love for his child. And that's the way God feels about us. Anything else in Luke? Yes, Wayne. And there's, there's that discussion about whether the prodigal son was lost or he was a backslidden or what it was, um, I think that's overanalyzing. I think it's a show of, of God's care for all people and a reminder to us of how important it is to be searching for that lost sheep, the lost coin, or the lost son. Um, there's that line in there that we use, that uh, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who comes to God than you can imagine. Remember the first time I ever helped share the gospel with someone that accepted it, and um, I was I was in eighth grade, seventh grade. I just finished seventh grade. We were at camp and we shared the gospel, and the guy that was with me just shared that verse, and I felt like I was joining in in that celebration. And you know, as I was reading that, every time I read that, I think about that particular moment. Pray God will give me more of those celebrations. Now, as a pastor, I'm fortunate I get to be in a lot of that kind of stuff. But if you've never experienced something like that, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, it really is interesting when you read the Bible and the plan that we're reading it through that there are things that overlap sometimes. You, you know, we'll read Deuteronomy where something happens, and then there's a psalm about what's happened, or two days later. It's it's neat to see. And it just shows, I mean, the, the Bible's written 66 different books over multiple continents, multiple authors, multiple centuries, and yet to see the cohesiveness of the whole, right? It's pretty amazing. I mean, that's just that. I don't think so, but wait, let me look at it because I don't want to say. We, we don't see any, and there's, there's, there's real debate. I mean, you have in Revelation some obvious interaction between those kind of things. Um, it, 
there's real discussion about whether this is a parable or an actual occurrence. I don't think it matters because the lesson it teaches is the same. And I do think that it shows that people in hell have an understanding that they are in hell and that they are not in the presence of God and that it's not where they want to be. You know, you hear people say sometimes, that's okay if I'm going to hell, I'm taking a whole bunch of friends with me, we'll have a good time down there. That's not going to happen, right? I mean, he just wants the tip of the finger of one that's been dipped in water. But there's no indication that Lazarus necessarily interacts. It's just the man looking up. Yeah. There there are two thoughts on that, Wayne. Um, There are those that say we will be oblivious to hell when we are on the new earth, new heaven, when we are fully ourselves in the presence of our Lord. And there are those that say that we will be fully aware of it and realize that that is the justice and the mercy of God that he has dealt with sin in that way. Here's the thing. If we're aware of it or if we're not, when we're in heaven, we won't feel bad about it. Because otherwise that goes against what heaven is like. Now for us in a human perspective, it is immeasurably difficult to think that we could ever be in heaven and know somebody we love is not. But when we get there, we have to realize our perspective will change. And you do have, even in this story, Miss Joan, this idea where he said, well, just go tell my brothers. One of the things I think is interesting, he doesn't say, well, all right, then let my brothers not hear it because I want them down here with me. What's interesting is, and we talked about this with the lost, one of the most passionate people we see in the Gospels about getting the message of God to others is the man in hell. Right? Go find my brothers. Go tell them. Go let them know. Send somebody. I'm not going to do it. Well, why not? Well, we've sent. And even if someone were to rise and go to, I mean, were to die and rise again, they wouldn't believe him. One of the people most concerned about missionary efforts is somebody in hell. And that ought to challenge our hearts. Proverbs and Psalms. Anything in there? Couple of weeks, a few weeks ago, I asked you to think about a psalm or proverb of the week. Anybody have one they particularly liked? Yeah, lazy people want much but get little. Those who work hard will prosper. Proverbs 13:3. Those who control their tongue will have a long life. Opening your mouth can ruin everything. <laughs> right? <laughs> one of the things, if you will, the modern worship movement is deeply indebted to the Psalms. Much of what we read, you know, in the Psalms, you, if some of the songs that we sing on Sunday morning in that second service, uh, a lot of them are tied deeply to the Psalms. That better is one day in your courts is almost directly from Psalm 84. Um, give thanks to the Lord. There's a song called Forever that's almost a direct quotation. Give thanks to the Lord our God and King. His love endures forever. Um, it says his love endures forever over and over again. I've, it was interesting because we sang that one time in a previous place at, a, at an event. Someone said, y'all sang his love endures forever too much in that song. And I said, well, you know, the scripture repeats it after every verse in that song. They say it more than we do. Um, so, yes. <laughs> Showing every week on CNN and <laughs> 
Fox News and when people broadcast, you know. In that, you know, you think about the prophets and it just settles with you. People that are the wisest people you've met, when on first meeting them, you wouldn't necessarily know that. They don't let you know that. But as you get to know them, you understand it. Sometimes people that make you want to know them and how smart they are are people that aren't necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Another week. We'll almost be done with Joshua next time we come. Think about that. We're going to almost be done with another book. And then we'll be in Judges, which is just story after story of interesting things that happen. And then we'll hit the love story of Ruth. Boaz. We didn't even talk about Rahab this week, which interesting question for you to ponder. Is it ever okay to do the wrong thing for the right reason? Boaz is descendant. Yeah. We're not given that information. Yeah. You know, Rahab had a lot of strikes against her. She was a non-Israelite woman, prostitute. Those are kind of three strikes. That's not the kind of girl you brought home to your Jewish mom, right? And she lies flat out, doesn't she? Now, I mean, you could say she bent the truth a little bit. Well, they're no longer here. Well, they weren't here. She'd buried them in a roof, right? But she she lied. And and here's the thing. I mean, it makes it, eventually we see how great and wonderful, I mean, she's in the lineage of Christ, but I'm not so sure she wasn't just looking out for herself. They're coming. They're going to take us over. I know how we can protect ourselves. I'll help them. She made a treaty. She, you know, it's an int- that is an interesting little nugget that's difficult to talk about sometimes in the church because you have to talk about sensitive issues. But, you know, I mean, what what were the guys doing there in the first place? I don't know. Personally, I don't have any knowledge of that, Miss Carol. Miss Carol, so that's the safest place to go, don't you think? I don't. I don't know. That that that's the thought. It's an interesting, but it's just an interesting dynamic that the. It's just an interesting dynamic. We don't have time to talk about it. Y'all, y'all ponder on that, and we won't talk about it again. So, yeah, their family was saved. Great week.